We want to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of MRP, Minority Report Podcast with Eric and Carell. Each episode, we talk with real operators and leaders in media, tech, and business. And joining us today is Mike Rocha, who's the Executive Director of Elevate at Omnicom Media Group. Let's jump in and get to know Mike. Mike, how you doing? Welcome. I'm great. Eric Carell, thank you for inviting me. Excited Absolutely. to talk to you guys. Yeah, we're we're thrilled to talk to you too, Mike. Carl and I were talking a little bit and you know, you just have such an impressive background and I think especially really unique experience too. It's not too often we that we get to spend some time with some folks that have a lot of experience, you know, really tackling, you know, a lot of really important work and really a lot of effort in areas that for some organizations feel kind of newer or of recent time. So can't wait to dive in there. But first, Mike, for those that don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about where you were born and raised before we get into what you're doing today for work? I always tell folks I'm a kid from Queens, born and raised in Middle Village, Queens, New York, youngest of four boys. My parents are from Guatemala. They immigrated to New York City in the late 60s. So I have two older brothers born in the 70s. And then there's a big gap between the two youngest boys who were born in the 80s. But we are a, a product of, of New York City. You know, born in the 80s, but raised in the 90s. So I'm a 90s hip hop head, Queens kid, fond memories of growing up in New York City. I went to school, I went to St. John's University in Queens. I started my career in New York in media. Then I moved down to Miami in 2006. So been here for a while now, but I'm based in New York. So I'm in New York every other week. So I still get you know connected yeah. to my roots. That's great. Besides probably having to have to be tough with a bunch of brothers, you know, getting, getting tough quick and, and, and learning how to defend yourself. What was it like kind of growing up in that, in that period of time? the son of parents from Guatemala, so Central Americans in New York. What was that childhood like? What was that upbringing like? That, that's a great question, because when I tell folks that, you know, I'm from Queens, New York, if you look at me, I, I am Latino. Like, you, you just see it, and you're like, this guy's Hispanic, but folks will automatically think I'm Dominican or I'm Puerto Rican, because that's the, the biggest contingent of Latinos in, in New York City. But growing up in New York and being from Guatemala, from Central America, it was it was different, especially growing up in, in Queens and in the area where I grew up. We grew up in a predominantly Italian, Irish neighborhood. So there were very few Latino families in those times. And the Latinos that we did know, they were mainly South American. So it was a lot of Peruvians, Colombians, Ecuadorians. And those were like my parents' friends. So every time we had a birthday, it was never our birthday. It was our parents, you know, opportunity to have a big, you know, pachanga party in the house. And that's kind of how we grew up. But it was interesting because I lead our Hispanic BRG at Omnicom Media Group. And the other BRGs from the Asian and the Black community want to do like a cross kind of conversation between the three BRGs. So the idea was this interesting topic called what's in a name. And they had the leads talk about their names. Mm -hmm. And everyone was like, well, Mike, your name's Mike. Like, 
what's in your name? I'm like, well, there's actually a, a big story behind my name. And it's kind of how I grew up because my parents immigrated to, to New York in the late 60s. And back then, when you were Latino, like the first wave of Latinos that came to New York City were Puerto Ricans and Cubans. And when you arrived, you had to assimilate and assimilate fast. Right. So yeah. and that's why I, I made an effort to kind of talk about my brothers and that age gap, because my two older brothers, you know, I love them to death, but they had it the hardest because in our house we spoke Spanish. Right. Like that was what we spoke to our parents. Yeah. And my mom made a big effort, especially with the Latin, with me and my my other brother to kind of speak to us in English. She gave us all real American names. So Mike, Dave, Robert, Jimmy, or James. And she did that because she wanted us to assimilate. She actually got called into the school where my oldest brother was in kindergarten because the principal told her, hey, look, we're having difficulties with James because he speaks Spanish. So moving forward, you need to speak to your kids in English. And coming from Latino culture, like authoritative voice, like the principal, you kind of listen, right? Like you like, you're like, I got to, you know, speak to them in English. And she made sure that like my next two boys, if I have kids, they're going to be very American names. So I have three kids. Right? I have two daughters, a 10 year old Lucia, my eight year old, her name is Cecilia. And when we had the boy and this is why it's so interesting about what's in the name. Everyone was like, hey, Mike, are you going to name him Mike Jr.? And I'm like, no way. And they're like, why? I'm like, because I'm actually going to make a decision that I wish my parents would have done. But to be honest, like if I were in their shoes, it would have been difficult. And I kind of I see where they're coming from now. But I want to kind of pay homage to that because I want to make sure my kid is as Latino as possible when you see it on paper and when you see him. So his name is Santiago Ignacio Roca. And like he is, you know, that name, you, you hear it and you know it's a Latino, right? And that's why I want to make sure that it came through loud and clear. That's kind of the story of what's in my name and why I love my name, man. I'm so proud of like the decisions my parents had to make and the times that they had to make them. But now we're living in a different world, right? Different where you're embracing yeah. your culture and making sure that we're, we're shouting that from the rooftops. That's, that's what I was going to say, Mike. Is, isn't it so fascinating how we can go from one generation to another? And you're right. Your mom, your parents are doing exactly kind of what they needed to do to protect their kid, right? That was at the heart of their decision-making process. But today... You know, we just live in a different world. You can say progress has been made where now in many ways for all of us who are dads on this call, protecting our kids is making sure that our kids lead with who they are and their heritage and their cultures. To me, it's so fascinating how times have changed when you move from one generation to the next. Yeah, no, Carlos, and, and, and it's important because it's honoring your ancestors, right? Knowing where you come from is what makes you who you are, right? Like, right. I'm not my title. Like, I, I will always right. be the youngest brother of, you know, these four Roca boys in Queens, New York. But my parents, you know, made those decisions. They also made great decisions, too. They would ship us off to Guatemala every summer. Love uh, so that we would spend time with our grandparents and with our cousins. And coming from, again, Latino communities, you have a million cousins. So we really kind of are tied to our roots and I kind of knew where my family was from. But when I got back to LaGuardia Airport, you know, I was back in New York City and back in this, you know, 
melting pot of different cultures. And now I live in Miami where it's predominantly Latino. So my kids, you know, 99% of their school is Latino and, and they speak Spanish and they're fluent and they love the music and the culture and the food. And it wasn't like that, especially for me growing up. So I love, you know, Carol, to your point, seeing that in this, in this new generation. Yeah, I think, Mike, that's a, it's a great point to point out for, you know, shouts to, to traveling when you're young and, and, you know, being able to connect with your roots like that. Uh, for those that don't know, I happen to be half Guatemalan as well. And I had the same summertime experiences where we would travel back from D.C. to Guatemala to be on my mom's side. And I would take all my toys with me. And then when I was there, I had to leave all my toys behind. My mom would always say, look, mijo, these toys that we brought from over here, they can't get these here, right? This is going to be our way to pass these on to not only your cousins, but to like their friends. And then you're going to leave this behind and they're going to get so much joy out of this. And I learned so much. And I think children can learn so much from traveling you know, yeah. on how to be with each other. So. I have a question for you, though. Did you bring back Boyle Campero <laughs> on the did. flight back? I absolutely did. And for those that don't know, before they opened Pollo Camperos here in the U.S., there was a super solid tradition of boarding an airplane with a bucket of fried chicken that was exclusively made there. And I had so many trips where we were not the only ones that made the whole cabin smell like delicious chicken. There might have been 10, 12 other people doing it. Yep. And, and one of my we were probably on the same flight. We probably were. We might be cousins. But you know, if, if, the, if, the, if the airlines were smart, they would have been catering that flight. Hey, exactly. you know, and, and the one time, ultimate chicken story, we got a delay. We had to stay in Miami on the way back. We had a connecting flight. My uncle, who brought the bucket, he was like, my turn to bring it, brought that and took care of it all night, put it in the fridge. Next flight, the next day, brought it home. We all enjoyed it together as a family back home. They haven't had it. Love it. So much fun. Mike, I've got to ask you, uh, you're doing some, some, some big things over at Omnicom Media Group with Elevate. Can you talk to us uh, about, you know, what Elevate is and what it is you're doing there for those that don't know? Spend a minute explaining that, please. Yeah, yeah. I've been with Omnicom for quite a minute now. So since almost going on 18 years at OMG. So I've been at all, eight, all of our agencies, OMD. Hearts and Science, PhD, and now at the center, which we call OMG. And Elevate is, is a center of excellence slash community that helps upstream diversity in the audience and, and business process, right? So I think right now we're hearing a lot about supporting diverse all media, which is important. Diversity, DEI, the last three years, you know post, unfortunately, George Floyd has been a big topic and priority for many organizations. Well, I think this year things have changed a bit. I think, you know, we're starting to kind of tackle that narrative. But I've been in this space since 2006, right? So I've been in the weeds and minutia of ensuring that we are talking to diverse segments and looking at diverse segments as a way of growth multicultural, cross-cultural, whatever we call it, it's growth. And I always talk about growth. If we're not looking at future-proofing your business, you're not going to be here in 20 years, right? You're not going to be here in some categories in the next decade if you're not talking to these audiences and you're not talking to them authentically. My main mission throughout my career, especially at, at Omnicom, was to ensure 
that we build a center of excellence where we can help empower teams. Because in 2023, it's everyone's responsibility to know this, but we know the reality of how it is working in an agency or working on a marketing side, working even on the media side, that sometimes it's afterthought. These audiences tend to be a bolt-on, and what Elevate is meant to do is build it in. Build it into the process so that when we do show up in the marketplace, it shows up organically. It's just part of what we do. It's second nature to work with the group blacks of the world, to work with the Canela media of the world, because it just ties back to the overall strategy and business objective is to ensure that we are reaching and engaging these diverse communities that we're talking to them rather than speaking at them and really having a dialogue with these with these consumers. Because I think what has happened for so long, it's all from a media perspective, been about reach. And my whole mission is, yes, reach is important, but relevancy trumps reach, right? Relevancy eats, reaches, lunch, dinner, breakfast. Like we got to be relevant with these consumers. We need to show up in the right spaces and places to truly connect with them because you could reach them, but are you connecting with them? That's another conversation. Yeah, I thousand percent agree with you in terms of being able to connect with the consumer and being relevant. I mean, you said you've been in the space for some time now. This is really at the heart of you know what you're passionate about, what you do every day in terms of helping brands reach the right consumer in a relevant place, right? You and I have had conversations prior to this because our, our companies work with each other, right? What do you think are some of the the biggest challenges as to why why this hasn't, if you will, scaled as much as as you and I would like in terms of marketers understanding the opportunity that's ahead of them and then doing more of reaching their audience in a relevant place? If that makes sense. I think if we look back post. 2008, 2009 recession, the term total market was coined. 2010 census came out, multicultural audiences are growing at the largest clip and contributing to the overall population growth of the US. We should have one creative campaign, one media plan that reaches all audiences, right? Because we, we are living in a multicultural market. I think that total market approach had a positive intention from the industry overall. What happened over the the years of 2010 to 2020 was many marketers, agencies, and media partners went about total market in a different way, right? There was not a unified definition of what total market was. For one marketer, it was one thing. For one agency, it was another. And what it did was it disproportionately impacted the diverse media community. Right. We saw a lot of endemic media players that have been around for decades fold. Right. We saw investments in endemic players that that built this marketplace decrease by huge margins in terms of their investment up from the prior decade. So post George Floyd, I think there was big interest in supporting diverse communities and, and talking to them authentically. I think the biggest barriers are those who walk the talk and those who who just talk the talk, right? I think it is ensuring that you are putting appropriate resources because it requires resources. 
And I always tell our internal teams and our external teams, our clients and our partners that it takes a village and you really have to commit. This is not an overnight thing. This is something that's going to take a three, five, 10 year roadmap to build out these strategies. You know, one of my biggest, I think, prides, and I count that's near and dear to me, has been my experience working on State Farm at OMD. This is back in, again, I'm aging myself all over this conversation. Do it. But back in 2006, they really wanted to start speaking to the Hispanic community, right? They were hearing from their agents across the board that, hey, we have a lot of Latinos coming into our agent offices and we are not equipped. We're not speaking to them from a media, from a marketing perspective. And State Farm doubled down. They created units within State Farm to start kind of talking to these audiences. They hired agencies. They invested in media and they became the number one insurance company amongst Latinos within five years by doing that, by doubling down and by committing with resources. And I think that's what it, it, it takes, that type of commitment to truly unlock the opportunity, because there is a huge opportunity that a lot of marketers and businesses are leaving on the table by not committing. And I think that's kind of what we really need to push for is accountability and making sure that if you're going to be making statements, that you better be kind of showing the receipts that, that you actually dial in into these audiences and into these partnerships. You know, Mike, I'm, I'm going to say it. So you don't have to, but a great example with State Farm, and you've worked with tremendous, tremendous media brands to sort of continue that example, but across other great companies like Ford and PNG and Google. And I'm really curious about your perspective. You know, in 2023, you know, AdAge and Meta presented a list of, of, of sort of media leaders and working in advertising and marketing to really sort of talk about some of the sort of big industry challenges and shifts. Yep. And you talked about growth and how that can be sort of just part of like the overall business versus like a bolt on, you know, I'm curious about you sharing your thoughts on a real critical factor. It seems like you guys talked about, which is, you know, really having D E and I in the workforce as being essential to authentic DEI marketing strategy, right? So if it's yeah. a workforce, it can translate into strategies. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. When I started in this business two decades ago, I did not see myself reflected in leadership. I did not see myself reflected in the agency. It felt very lonely, right? There were, you know, people of color and we all gravitated towards each other. And I still hold those friendships tight till this day, 20 years later, I definitely see a change. I see a change in terms of the reflection of people at the top. I still wish for more change. And I think naturally it does have an impact on the way marketers go to market, but I don't think it's an automatic shift because there are times where I, I'm speaking to folks who are also, you know, people of color who are, who are decision makers, and it's tough for them to make that commitment to change, right? I think what is needed is that expertise in the space. I think that's where marketers who are probably not of the community or of the community and 
who need to kind of own up to, hey, I don't have expertise in this space. Let me bring in either media partners, agencies who are dialed into these communities and who know these communities to help us. Yeah, It's all right to not know what you don't know, right? And I think that's what sometimes people kind of hold very close to the chest is like, and I don't know what gets in the way, egos or, or, or not being transparent, you not knowing what you don't know. But it's important to bring the experts to the table because I think that's where change happens. And I love that I see the change in faces in these boardrooms, but I need to see that diversity of thought as well in terms of experience and what they bring to the table. Because I think that's where real change happens, especially when that diversity of thought actually has influence in terms of budgets, resources, and being able to make decisions on behalf of either agencies or on the marketing side. Yeah, what a really good point. You would do it almost in every other aspect of the business, right? If you need a data specialist and specialization and expertise there, you would do it. If it was market research, right? No brainer, you would do it, right? Yeah. And then just to take it one other step, right? If it was that, then you bring in the expertise and you bring in... Exactly. And that's what Elevate's all about, right? We have cultural, what we call cultural practitioners that are embedded into key businesses. So I see it almost as a teaching hospital. They help keep the internal teams and our clients accountable in terms of ensuring that we are upstreaming diversity in the business planning and the audience planning of the work that we produce on behalf of our clients and that it naturally waterfalls into the media ecosystem. Uh, so they work across all disciplines from a planning perspective, marketplace, marketing science. I call them our unicorns at Omnicom Media Group because they wear many hats, but they're experts with these audiences. And they can go into any boardroom and present to any CMO and talk to these audiences authentically. And they understand the marketplace. And most importantly, they understand media. They understand the fundamentals of how we can move the needle in terms of reaching and really engaging these audiences. So that's where I say, bring in the Elevate team, bring in our cultural practitioners to help you along your journey. Because not everyone can be a PNG, right? But everyone can start their journey. And it's really up to marketers to commence it and to bring us along. Mike, where do you draw inspiration from? To be honest, I draw inspiration just from my family, my parents. Like it's... Uh, I always tell folks that like professionally, I'm an extrovert, but you know, I'm a real introvert and I love just kind of, you know, I grew up with this big family and I see what they went through and just like the generation that came before us, like they're, they're all heroes, like they in everything that they do, you know, till this day, I, I tell my kids, I'm like, look, like your grandparents have gone through things that we don't have to go through. So I draw from them. I remember my mom well, at one point was working two jobs. She was you know, taking trains at 4 a.m. in New York City in the 70s when it was wow. like the craziest crime. And I'm like, that's nuts for me to jump on planes and go to different clients. Like, I don't complain at all. Like I draw mm. inspiration from the generation that came before us. I draw inspiration from my wife who just I can't even do this without her. She's amazing. She, she started in the media business as well. She teaches at University of Miami. She teaches advertising and she's a media consultant. You know, she helps raise these three amazing kids that we have, but it's homegrown. Like I, I really draw inspiration from the four walls of the, of the Roca household. But externally, like 
I call them my personal board of directors of the people that I grew up with in the industry because I didn't have mentors. Growing up in the industry, I didn't see myself reflected in leadership. So again, I gravitated towards people who are cut from the same cloth right. as me. And now, you know, this personal board of directors have these amazing kick-ass jobs. And we all share experiences and give each other tips. And like, you know, when we win something, we're the first one to give each other kudos. So I draw inspiration from them. And I also, what inspires me is the generation to come, you know, and I think sometimes they get a bad rap, but there are a lot of them out there right now that surprise me. And I do a lot of mentorship and I'm excited to see what's to come because a lot of them have a great hustle in them. They're seeing now reflection in leadership. And I think it is imperative that all of us in leadership roles now send the elevator down and we bring as many people up. Your comment about your board of directors is very interesting. I was given that advice very early on in my career to find a group of folks in the industry that you can connect with that are on similar paths as you, right? That you can build with, that you can celebrate with that you can challenge each other with as well, too. And so that group for me has been instrumental in my career growth. And it sounds like the same for you. Yes. And they're the first ones I go to for advice. They come to me for advice because out there, again, sometimes it it feels a little lonely, right? You don't know who has your back, who doesn't have your back. But this personal board of directors, 100% have your back and they keep it real. And they'll call you out when things get too much to your head. I really rely on them. It's been growing steadily. Like the more, you know, we grow in our careers, the, you know, we're meeting different people from different walks of life Mm -hmm. that you just kind of see eye to eye with. And you're just like, well, let me let you in to the walled garden that we have here from our board. But it's been great. So I do draw inspiration from them. And I see that it's helped many along the way in terms of, you know, we talk about things that, salaries right like we know that salaries has become a taboo like to talk about like you know like what should i be earning or like what are you earning at this agency or at this company so like that, that's great to have that that think tank as well when it comes to like negotiating on behalf of what you bring to a company absolutely absolutely what excites you about the future of our industry there's just so much change so fast the advancements in technology and data it's both exciting and scary at the same time, to be honest. I see like AI as something that is like, it's incredible, you know, what's been happening in that space. But at the same time, we talk about the inequities and misrepresentation in certain categories. And you think about tech, you know, there's a severe underrepresentation of people who actually understand diverse communities and how that could be a slippery slope when it comes to technology and diversity. So that's something that I'm very cautious about, but I'm very excited about like some of the benefits that I could bring and kind of bear fruit to the marketplace. So that's something I'm, I'm definitely keeping an eye on. I think everyone is because if you go to any conference, that's all everyone talks about right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like sort of rewinding a, a little bit back to some of the, the, older days and it sounds like there was a lot of sort of lessons learned and passed on from your family to like who you are today. If you thought about it just for a second on the spot right now, obviously, but if there was like one or two things that always kind of stand out that you feel like you learned from your parents or from your family that you pass on professionally to others, 
or even your own family, what are one or two of those kinds of things that you always sort of think about you learned, you know, from your family and your experiences that you pass on to others? I see myself kind of passing that on to my kids, right? Like stay true to yourself, stay true to who you are. Don't compromise. And I've been learning this in my career. Like the more you move up, you know, sometimes people have to give up some of who they are. And I think previous generations and my ancestors too much to do that because they've instilled so much in me. And I like, I, I actually tell that to my kids, you know, like in the age of social media and what they're going through, they, they're growing up so differently than when we grew up. Right. We didn't have Instagram and all, and like just all this noise 24 seven. Yeah. So I tell them like, you know, I, I try to empower them and still that in them because it helps you out professionally in terms of, you know, walking into a room and being confident in yourself and your ability of what you bring to the table. I think transparency, communication skills, people skills, I think being humble is important. You know, we talk about mentors. I still think there's a, there's a lack of people who actually care about other people in the industry. And I think that is something that I try to make the time to have conversations with people rather than having conversations in my free time. Because we, we need to make room to have these conversations and just have real frank conversations. I think that's kind of what we need more of. And my parents always taught me that. Like, they were always real with me in terms of, hey, like when you're shooting the shit, make sure that you're direct in terms of your, your, you know, your communication with folks. And it's sometimes hard conversations that you have to have with people but I've been always very direct and transparent. I think that's important in terms of working in group environments. I think that's something that comes from the culture as well, right? It's all, sometimes it's, it's not about the me, it's about the we and what you bring to, to the team. So I, I always try to encourage folks to think about the team and not to think about just yourself. I think there's times to think about yourself, right? Obviously within your career and, and your progression, but when you're thinking about, the work and the team, it's a we environment. Yeah, you know, I want to ask you too, kind of that question in a different way, because you mentioned, and I think a lot of us feel this way too, that we're, we didn't necessarily have like pure mentors helping or working with us, you know, in our career, right? You know, you yeah. We have a mentor, but now you have an opportunity to, to actually work with others, right? And in, in their career. What's maybe one or two things that you felt like you've learned from some folks that, you know, you spend time with and sort of coach up or mentor, there's got to be one or two things that sometimes, you know, you learn as a result of sort of working with others that are a little bit earlier in the career. What might be one or, the, or two of those things? that you um, everyone? Like I said, this, this new generation that's coming up, they get a bad rap of maybe being entitled or, you know, all the other time with negative tropes that come against this generation. But if you think about what they've come up through too, you know, great recessions, a pandemic, like all these things that are just, it's, it's been crazy in terms of their experience. It's interesting in terms of that, that work-life balance. And sometimes I'll have a conversation with them. And they're like, hey, Roka, like you're involved in so many things. Like take time for you. They'll bring it back to reality. <laughs> I'm like, wow, I'm hearing this from a 24-year-old, you know? Yeah. Um, but I have my hands in so many different hats and, and like they're always seeing me like on different, you know, conferences and, you know, a lot of things that I'm involved in. So it's interesting that, 
you know, they have that take because I see that they're coming up in a different world than, than we did, you know, yeah. 20, you know, or 25 years ago. And it's important. You know, I think mm-hmm. the pandemic taught us many lessons in terms mm-hmm. of that work-life balance. Like, you know, I know you guys probably travel a lot. I, I travel a ton for work, but I make sure that like, you know, last week, for example, I took the family to Disney World. I put that that work phone in the hotel. Like I did not bring it with me at the park. Like I made sure I was completely vested in my kids' experience and just making sure that my mind was just in the moment rather than in my phone and in like what's coming down the pike. And I think that's sometimes that has come up in conversations I've had with some of the younger folks that I mentor. And I love that, you know, and I don't think that's something negative about them. I think it's, it's a positive that, it, you know, like we need to kind of balance these two worlds to, to make for a healthy human being. Very true. Very true. What advice would Mike today give to Mike first starting out in his career? So a younger Mike would be just stay the course. I think earlier in my career, you know, growing up in New York City, like graduating from college. And I remember making the first salary I made at, at MediaVest at the time. I, I could have almost been on welfare. Like it was so bad, the salary. And I remember making decisions and jumping from shop to shop earlier in my career because you were just chasing the dollar. The dollar. And yeah. you weren't really focusing on your growth within the organization. And that's why I always go back to like having mentors and having people who can really help you, like say, Mike, just stay the course. The money will come. Just focus on the work and focus on building your skill set and the money will come. And it does. All that comes at its time. You know, if you really dedicate yourself and that's kind of what I've been doing in terms of mentorship is like just focus on building these core skills and fundamentals and the money will come. Don't chase the salaries. I think a lot of folks who are doing that, especially during the great resignation, a lot of people are moving from agency to agency, media partner to media partner, uh, you know, client to client. You know, I was talking to some of these, these young kids who were, they were making 50% increases, 80% increases from salary to salary. I'm like, be careful because this ride's not going to last too long. Like you have it good in this place. You know, sometimes I'd rather be in a company where I know kind of like, where the pitfalls are versus a company where you're coming in new and green and not understanding where those landmines are. So thinking about long-term and the long game versus, you know, short-term gains. I think that's one of my biggest regrets in the beginning of my career. And I wish I would have told younger Mike, just stay put, man. Don't worry about money. It's going to come in due time. Yeah. Great, great advice. Know exactly what you mean. All right. Fun question. What's in the music rotation right now? Oh my God, this is embarrassing right now. <laughs> <laughs> so I, have ten, I have a like my life is completely taken over by my girls, my 10-year-old, my eight-year-old girls. There's no 90s hip hop from Queens. Oh, I, I do have my 90s hip hop, which is like <laughs> I have my Wu-Tang. I have like I, you know, I definitely have like my biggie, like music that they don't listen to, but like yeah. their music creeps into all of my music. So I'll be at the gym and then all of a sudden I'm listening to like a Taylor Swift song. Like what is happening here? So their music seeping into my world, but I am a hundred percent a nineties hip hop head. I had an opportunity to go to a Wu-Tang concert here in Fort Lauderdale, which was awesome nice. uh, a couple of months ago. So that was really cool for me. That was a cool experience. 
anything that's 90s, that's kind of where my head's at or early 2000s. I'm jealous of folks who got to go see Lauren Hill. Like that is me too. Me. Like, yeah. Did you guys get to go see her concert? No, I'm, I'm, I'm jealous of those who got to go see it as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of my, my music. It's interesting, right? Because we grow up and when you're, when you're growing up, you think about like people who are like in seventies rock and all these other music and you're like, what the hell? And now you're like, <laughs> now my kids like, why do you only listen to the same music? I'm like anything past 2002, it's just not cool for me anymore. I don't know. I hear you. I hear you. What are you guys listening to? Corral, you want, you want to take it away first? Or you want me to go first? Go ahead, Eric. Go ahead. Oh, man. So I kind of got like three main big vibes. So obviously, big 90s, 2000 sort of hip hop too. Like literally, I mean, I got everything from like on my phone from like Black Moon to like, I mean, like a bunch of stuff, right? So, but recently, besides like a bunch of like reggaeton, I've been really into like a bunch of different sort of like Afrobeats artists. And I'm like, getting in real deep with a lot of you know fire boys you know like i'm i'm like in deep on 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 that tip right now so it's just like a constant rotation of that and i'm discovering like new songs so that's that's it for me right now yeah and i'm 90s hip-hop 90s r&b anything jay-z it's my favorite artist of all time so that's where i'm at <laughs> i love it i love it maybe we should publish like a, a couple screenshots of What's in the rotation too? That'd be yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because my daughter just turned 10 years old and to see that these kids are not like, you know, they love Taylor Swift, but they love Latin music. And I love it. You know, like I think we played the clean versions of um, <laughs> the Bad Bunny songs, but they knew all like the lyrics and they were like vibing with it. And I'm just like, this is incredible right. uh, yeah. to see just the world that they're growing up in versus the world that we grew up in where, you know, we listened to live music, but it wasn't what it is today. And it's, it's, yeah. it's amazing that it's just been this like crossover smash that it is. I agree. I agree. Well, Mike, thanks for hanging out with us today. What a blast. Thanks for passing along a lot of insights. And, you know, a lot of times our, our viewers and listeners like to stay in touch. What's a good way that, that folks can get in touch with you. That's easy. Hit me up on, on LinkedIn. Let's definitely start the conversation there. That's my social media of preference. Thanks, Mike. And thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode. You can find many more episodes wherever you find all of your audio and video. Just search for the logo and find Minority Report Podcast. Thanks again, Mike. And thanks, everyone, for listening. All right, thank you, guys.